This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. With me this week are two fantastic human beings, Tia Vasiliu. Hello. And Nick White. Hey. Thank you both for joining me this week. I'm really excited because we've got a killer Kickstarter commissioned episode coming to you. And that's after the break. But before we get to all that, let me ask the question I ask pretty much every week. How have you been? How have comic books been? Let's start with you, Tia. It's kind of been a week, let me tell you. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> if I, oh, it's been a week. Like, feel feels like everyone I know is sick, and I have been sleeping for like 15 hours a day. Oh, I don't Lord. know why. Yeah, it's just like something. I've been dreaming about comics, maybe, but um, <laughs> I didn't get to read as many as I really would have liked. Okay. Uh, so I'm only going to talk about one today, which was awesome, and that is Dazzler X Song number one, which yes. I think is just a one shot, which makes me really sad. Maybe Same. that's why I had to take to my bed because I was so sad that it's just a one shot, <laughs> <laughs> like a like a lady in the 19th century whose corset is too tight. Mm-hmm. This is by Magdalene Visaggio, Laura. Braga and Rochelle Rosenberg and oh my gosh so like I don't know I've always known about Dazzler like she's cool she I guess can turn sound into like a light force thing I guess kind of like what is that like what Cyclops shoots out of his face tell me Mike I don't know well so Dazzler's powers are weird because they're very strictly based around turning sound into energy, right? right. Not but like a jubilee, also, but it's right? yeah, ener- it's light usually. I think um, like Tia, sometimes... I'm about to go sleep for 15 hours now. Just wake me up, <laughs> wake me up when Mike's. I mean, he won't be done in 15 hours, but uh, you can listen, let me know. Listen, it's 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 fine. I'll I'll get I'll be very succinct about it. She turns sound into light energy, and sometimes it's concussive, sometimes it's not. She usually uses it to like jazz up her shows that she's performing. Like as she's performing music, she's like shooting light out of everything. It's cool. It's kind of like Jubilees, but cooler for some reason. I don't know. And it but Dazzler's fantastic. It seemed from this one shot that it doesn't have to be her own sound that she's making. Correct. It, like, it's other any music. Could, yeah. I mean, that's pretty cool. Anyway, she's awesome. She is a pop star. She has this like super cool, colorful kind of gem vibe going on with pink hair. Totally. And, you know. Totally outrageous. Totally outrageous. In the story, there are a couple of girls who are fans and they are inhumans. Now, I'm just going to say up front don't care about Inhumans, don't really care about X-Men, don't care about their beef with each other. I've not followed any of that. I don't really, I like only in the most vague terms know what's going on with them and the like Terrigan mists and they like don't like each other and there were the fighting noises. They're, okay. they're all the same. Yeah. Like all, it's very yeah. sharks and the jets with the X people, <laughs> the mutants and the Inhumans. And they don't like each other. With and the snapping and the clapping and the. It's true. There's yeah. the dance breaks. And so Dazzler's basically just like, Dazzler's like with me. She's like sitting on the couch with me, being like, I don't give a crap about any of this fighting nonsense. Can we please just listen to music and be cool just be cool everybody totally and i really like maybe that's why i liked this so much because i was like dazzler i feel you and or allison actually so I mean, she's not even going by dazzler she's going by her actual name um which i thought was a really interesting like way to for in the story for it to, for her to put distance between her like ex 
sona is that a thing your ex sona it is now because <laughs> i love that she's like i'm God. just allison i'm just a pop star singing a song and the problem is that there's these mutants who are like trying to gatekeep and sometimes be very violent about it and very like shitty and abusive to uh, uh, towards inhumans who are fans and try to come to dazzler's shows or allison shows Mm -hmm. um actually her band has a name the Lightbringers, and so what i really what i really thought was interesting about this is allison very explicitly is not having this shit and it really reminded me of just everything that is going on in comics right now with like a group of a small group of very shitty loud people mm-hmm. who are able to whip up other people in support of them because like they say a few things that maybe sounds like it sort of makes sense if you like squint at it but really what it is is extremely abusive and they're really shitty to people who they've decided are for whatever arbitrary reason like not welcome there and i think that it's important in real life for more comics creators to be very explicit about how that is not okay and they're not having it and be really active in like not letting that seep into the spaces where they have some sort of power or where their like creative work lives like if mm-hmm. that, if they're against that they need to keep that out because they're kind of the ones with with the power and i like how dazzler allison um in the story is v- like she is like she keeps that out of her shows like she's not having it at all and it's just i think a really nice way to be like hey look here's what needs to be happening everybody okay good let's just be cool yeah that it's such a good book like what a great one shot like we rarely get good one shots by the x-men i say that because i read one and it was really bad very recently um so i'm i'm glad that this one kicked butt because x-men need that sometimes at least yeah. my personal opinion. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's really interesting to me, too, that, you know, for so long in comics history, the X-Men were supposed to be this metaphor for, you know, outsiders, the downtrodden, the abused, like, and in, I think that very specifically in, uh, like, Gamergate and Comicsgate and these, these, like, white supremacist spaces, people are trying to claim that as their identity and as their, like, experience and co-opt it in a way and it's just like no man stop that you know yeah i totally agree well it seems like this book really touches on the idea of of how quickly the the um oppressed can transition into being the oppressor and the cognitive dissonance that comes along with that oh man yeah no i would be really actually careful about saying that because i don't necessarily like well, I'm saying it sounds like these X-Men, right? You're saying that you have mutants. Well, it's not X-Men. Who, there are well, mutants who are like pushing back oh, against Inhumans. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And it's, so it's like you take two oppressed groups in a way, and like one is just trying to pit their their dominance over the other because they're right. different, quote unquote, gene freaks. Like I don't know, it was, it is really rough, like to to deal with that because it was like, it was like, but you're that's not what mutants are all about. Like there's there's this harmony in this like. This we are a group of people who are can unite like for a better future, but like that's the X Men ideal. I don't know. I right. I was very like torn about some of that, but I I understand what was going on in the book, like what was happening. Just like it seems so out of character for mutants to do that, but in my head it's like no no that's out of character for the X Men. Um, that they aren't the sole representative of all mutant kind in a way. Yeah, um, that's 
see it's i'm an glad there's an delineation. expert here okay. to yeah. weigh in to fill that in because you know as i said i just don't really follow the x-men saga mm-hmm. <laughs> or the mutant or the inhuman you know it's like it just kind of going on in the background i know that it exists but that i think that's helpful insight anyway it was great how about you nick um oh it's it's been a weird weekend it, it was one of those weekends where i was supposed to catch up on sleep from having a sort of sleep deprived week and uh didn't really happen uh weird weird times man uh just just got back from solo um that was a movie uh i'll (laughs) reserve other thoughts but um there are things i'm just not having about this movie i'll leave it at that uh other than that i had some adventures a friend who was out of town called me to tell me that he had left the hose filling his pool on the day before and uh he's like I need someone to go check on that. So that was something I got to do. Uh, I, I envisioned <laughs> half of like the city block underwater, uh, but um, things seemed to be okay. So Cape that was Town a thing. literally ran out of water like three months ago. Yeah. Well, now you now they're going to have even less at this point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so what'd you read, Nick? Yeah, tell me what you read. Sure, yeah, please. Sure. <laughs> Please tell me that it conforms to some normal standards in your life. Yes, thank you. Um, So I read Harbinger Wars 2, number one. That's right. This is the second Harbinger Wars, and it's the first issue of it. Uh, If there's anything I love about a comic, it's a super confusing, stupid title uh, that really just jars people. So we're right off, you know, right off the bat, doing real well here. Um, Written by Matt Kint. Uh, line work by Thomas Giarello, colors by Diego Rodriguez, as I said, yay for messy and convoluted titles. Um, this issue had a tough act to follow, because um, it follows Eric Hessier and Raul Allen's prelude issue, which was so good, so, 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 so good. Uh, and, of course, that's the team from Secret Weapons. So this issue deals with the fallout from the prelude, which I'll try to dance around enough here and say that Livewire may or may not have overreacted to some aggression towards psyots and um a lot of the lights are out in america and and we'll leave it at that uh okay that being said uh people are taking sides so yes i understand the eye rolling nick geez this sounds a lot like civil war um, people are gonna be shoehorned in and and have to go up against each other blah 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 and i think yeah, there's a bit of that, and I would go so far as to say, look, Civil War didn't invent that either. They were reinventing that wheel, too. Um, but what I find different is that Valiant has been slowly leading to this point for like a year, a year and a half, and what I really like about Matt Kint is that he's not doing what you see a lot with these, you know, these guys are on this side and these guys are on that side and we're just going to smash our action figures together and until they fight or, or kiss or something's <laughs> going to happen, right? Um, <laughs> uh, maybe both. He's, he's very well understood that he's not going to shoehorn characters into acting uh, uh, in ways that would just be completely uncharacteristic. Um, Ninjak has always worked for MI6. He's always worked for the military, but he has feelings for Livewire, so he's trying to like tip her off and let her know and people are looking for you. People that are more characters that operate in the gray are still sort of operating in the gray. 
Um, Bloodshot, who of course was a government project, guess what? He really doesn't want to side with the government. So people are acting like they should. I appreciate that. Beyond that, yes, it does feel a little bombastic, and yes, it does feel um, like a summer event, which is fine, because that's what it is. Um, the only other thing I would say is it's really, really weird to see the characters from Secret Weapons drawn by anyone other than Raul Allen. And I think we've all seen this in comics before, where it's just... It, it's so weird to finally see someone you've always seen drawn by someone drawn by someone else, and you're like, I don't know about this. Yeah, um, yeah. Especially when you go from someone more cartoony and stylized like Alan to Thomas Giarello. So I read that. The other thing I just want to briefly touch on, I started Planetary Volume 1, written by Warren Ellis, drawn by John Cassidy, colors by Laura Martin and David Barron, two of my favorite colorists for Valiant. I'm not that far into this, but I, I think I'm mainly just using this book to puff my chest, and I'm sure people out there are like, you know what, we've, we've got Nick Pegged, Valiant, Dark Horse, and a decreasing amount of DC books as they piss him off. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, we've really figured him out. And I think a lot of this just goes into me really being more comfortable sitting down and really slowing down when I'm reading something like John Hickman and something like Warren Ellis, where if you don't, like, you're just sort of glazing over pictures, pictures where people are largely just talking. Uh, mm-hmm. And so you <laughs> really don't really don't grasp what's going on. Uh, and to some to some credit, I, I will say, you know, Mike. Mike has pushed these guys on me enough that I'm like, you know, whatever. But I'll, I'll, I'll mainly take credit for it. I believe this is like a personal <laughs> development of sorts, um, like a personal growth. So like Mike was there, but he was like secondary character waiting in the wings. Uh, Thanks, you know, Nick. Off I'm to glad the side. To even, I'm glad yeah. to just show up, you know? Yeah. Maybe, maybe we'll just hire a voice actor for your part. They won't even see you. They'll just hear you. So... I think what works for me about Cassidy here is I'm so used to seeing him drawing Star Wars, which, yes, I know, he's drawn so many other things, but that's the thing I connect with him. I think he drew the first two arcs of the 15, 2015 reboot, uh, and I I admit I wasn't real keen on Cassidy because I feel like he was like, you know what, I'm going to go for this sort of photorealistic look for Star Wars, and he was like 90% of the way there, but then like mm-hmm. Luke's nose just looked a little weird, or like... Uh, just little things, you know what I mean? And it's like at that point, just go with someone who either like nails it, like Alex Ross, which I don't like Alex Ross, so don't do that, or just go hyper stylized, you know what I mean? Like if you read the K2SO and Cassian one shot, that was a really hyper stylized uh, take by I think Fernando Blanco, and that worked, and I really liked that. So yeah, but really back to planetary. This. Back to planetary. Uh, it's hard to really explain this book. Um, it's hard to sum up as well as hard to project where it's going because I'm a only an issue or two in and it's still full of mystery but you have this group of characters that are trying to figure out Earth's secret history conspiracy theories behind you know how things really played out and how things really happened and uh, I think you've, you've got this one lady who's super strong and this other guy who works with machines so that's that's Donatello and the la- I guess the lady is Leonardo and um, you've got this other guy who controls heat and cold, so I don't really have a comparable Ninja Turtle for that. So I guess just dip into the X-Men or something and find someone that fits that role. Iceman, <laughs> I suppose. Um, <laughs> this is how I this is how I operate. Um, That's fine. But uh, just really, really interesting book, and I, I would encourage people that are 
looking for something um, a little bit more slower, a little bit denser uh, to take interest in planetary. Uh, it's really interesting because I feel like Cassidy, um, visually, like I see a real strong connection between Cassidy and John David Hunt, the guy who's currently drawing the Wild Storm. Like he, they've both got that very clean, clean art style going on, just simple lines, um, and it's just easy to look at. Uh, and it's just shocking that Cassidy's art is like 20 years old in this. It looks great. So that's that's me, you know, turning off uh, pools and 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 reading Planetary. What what about you, Mike? I read a lot. I was on vacation for a week, and I read a lot of comic books. But one thing that I do want to talk about, because I read a lot of manga, but I dove into some Star Wars, and I think this is a serious dent. Nick laughed at me when I said this was a serious dent, but I read... <laughs> I put a big dent in this, Nick. Okay, yeah, let's hear. I read Star Wars Volumes 1 through 3, Darth Vader 1 and 2, and Vader Down. So I basically read, wanted to read through the entire Vader Down saga, and then I started into Volume 3 of Star Wars. This is, you know, Kieran Gillen and Jason Aaron on writing, uh, John Cassidy, Mike Mayhew, Salvador LaRocca, Lenel Yu, a bunch of artists on this book, and I just want to say, holy shit, Star Wars... Um, there's so much action, so much adventure. Like, I forget that Star Wars comics, like, they need to be as action-packed and exciting as the movies. But in my head, I'm like, no, no, no. The times between the movies are just downtimes for these characters. But that, that <laughs> that's bullshit. There's no way that that's how you sell comic books. So I read through a lot of this. I really liked it. Like, I did not think I was going to be as into it as, as I ended up being. Like, I read the Poe Dameron series for a while and dropped it. Um, but when, like... When we started to see more lightsabers show up in the book and we saw Gracchus the Hutt, who is a character that shows up in Poe Dameron. So like way in the future, this character, Gracchus the Hutt, is also like still alive, still like kicking, still being a bad, bad hut on giant spindly, creepy legs. Um, and then to see him <laughs> in this Star Wars book, that was a lot of fun like for me. Um, I also, you know, as everyone has said and everyone should, I love Afra. She's so awesome like she's she's got this unbelievable confidence that no matter what you think you've pulled on her she's always going to escape she's always going to get the better of you like i love that that like mentality i love the way that she's written i think both i think kieran gillen you know created this character he did a fantastic job with her and then to see jason aaron write her a little bit in the star wars series during the rebel jail arc like oh my like it was so good i just want a book that is sana and leia and afra i just want like a four issue mini series of them having to get out of a bind similar to what happened in rebel jail because that was so much fun bicycle did you really just roll up to afra 15 minutes late with starbucks i mean yeah <laughs> Like, how many of us have been telling you this for how long? Listen, I read Star, I read Darth Vader Volume One a while ago, and then I reread it, you know, just to keep make sure that I knew everything. And I just, <laughs> I don't know, some it just finally clicked as I was reading so much of her and reading Star Wars. It just, I, I had a like very all your good favorite Star Wars things. time. Yeah, tell she, us about I, how you just discovered Breaking Bad, Mike. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Listen, guys, you know what? Sometimes I yeah. take my time on things and I binge and I had a very good time. Um, the one last thing I will say is Darth Vader is the meanest, 
barely kept together, angry, confident dad that I want to read more and more about. Like, I'm super hooked on the Darth Vader series just because it seems like he's barely got his shit together, but he has to be the scariest, meanest person ever. I love the way that Gillen has kept him in this very confident, very bold and angry, like, mentality that you would expect out of Darth Vader in the movies. But yet he has screwed up, and he has to get around all of these protocols. <laughs> he's got a, a bunch. chaperone, <laughs> and, he, and he has yeah, and he's got a chaperone, which is the funniest thing I've ever seen. Like the fact that they think that Darth Vader could be kept is the funniest thing to me, right? Um, I love and I love the way that he's like schemed a lot of things, and he's constantly used the Force as his little bit of luck, just like Anakin. And I hate to say this, but the prequels make sense when you start to read this this book. Wow. Like Darth Vader hasn't changed that much as a character because Anakin Skywalker was a piece of garbage person who used the force to his own advantage and that's exactly what Darth Vader's doing and I really like that like they aren't trying to wholly acknowledge the prequels but they still keep some of those character aspects if you like study it from like a big picture way I think that it all connects and it kind of makes me happy that they aren't trying to throw away everything you know I, I don't know. It worked. I, I really enjoyed this. Was Anakin born garbage or was he made garbage? Oh, God. We, all right. <laughs> that's we'll a, that's a whole other episode. We'll do a mini-sode. We'll episode. do a whole other episode. We'll do a mini so- Yes. But, we'll do. Okay. Did you like yeah. how uh, the annual number one played into Rebel Jail? Because I, I thought that it. was brilliant. I mean, you I, see annuals just as a throwaway thing so many times, but uh, I think that was Gillen who wrote the Star Wars annual number he did. one. That yeah. was so smart. I love that issue. You're following nobody even remotely related to anything you know about Star Wars, and then mm-hmm. they just rope it back in. And I can only imagine if you were reading that month to month, that must have been like a shock. That was it was a really cool reveal in the trade as well, because the trade yeah. starts with the annual and then you find out a character from that annual shows back up. It's so good. Like I I'm really happy with what they've done with the Star Wars comics. And again, I didn't think I was gonna be as into it as I ended up being, so I'm I'm very happy. I'm like gonna keep reading this. I'm gonna binge for the rest of this week on Star Wars. I'm very excited for it. But let's move on. Because we could do a whole thing about Star Wars, as always. We could do a thousand episodes about Star Wars. But let's talk about books that are coming out this upcoming week. Comic books are being released on June 13th, 2018. What are you both excited for? Let's start with you, Nick. Well, I think we've already talked about me broadening my horizons and growing as a person in ways that are just completely unbelievable to the average human being. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to extend that even further. Uh, so I have a Lion Forge book here. I know. It's crazy. That's um, crazy. I know. Uh, Orphans Volume Number One. Uh, unfortunately, it does involve me pronouncing Italian names, but we're gonna try here. Uh, written by Roberto Reccioni uh, and drawn by Emiliano Mamukari. Uh, sorry, guys. Um, so I saw this volume uh, one or two months back in previews, and I was like, you know what? Uh, this is a nice standalone book huge amount of pages great price interesting concept i know nothing else but let's try this so this is a book that as the preview summary goes says um after a devastating attack from distant space uh leaves a large portion of earth's population in terror and ruin a band of children are groomed into a unit of perfect soldiers sent to the distant hostile planet to avert another horrific attack Uh, but when they arrive they discover dark secrets that earth's government 
I think there's, I don't think this was spell tracked, uh, uh, would prefer remain secret. So basically, it's Ender's Game meets Starship Troopers um, with children. Uh, so it's it's oh, okay. got everything I love. It's it's standalone. I can get into this by it. You know, it's a nice price. It's a huge book. There's tales of reckless child endangerment. And people say children of the future. <laughs> Why the future? Let's make them do the work now. Um, let's just get them in there <laughs> and fighting our battles. So uh, here they are. Here they are on a distant planet. The art looks good. Government conspiracy. It's pretty much everything I'm interested in. Uh, this is this author is largely known, um, Reccioni, for doing uh, Italian work for a publisher called uh, Yura Editoriale, including uh, a series called John Doe and Detective Dante. Uh, but he did recently pen The Crow, Memento Mori, which came out in March, which was a IDW collaboration mm-hmm. with... Eddie Azzoni, BD, which is a Italian comic book publisher. So that's kind of cool. It took place in Rome, unsurprisingly. Uh, so, yeah, it, it sounds fun. It is sort of just a big gamble. Let's just see what this is and see if it's good. But I'm, you know, I'm always saying on the show, try new things. And also, don't try new things. Stick to what you know. So I'm very proud to continue this mixed message that I've been sp- spreading for years. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) What about you, Tia? All right. Well, I am looking forward to Monstrous number, what is it, 17, 18? Number 17, Marjorie Mm -hmm. Liu and Sana Takeda. They're nominated for like five Eisner Awards this year. Mm -hmm. And I am really behind on this series. I probably need to get caught up after the second trade, which was like up through number two. 12 I think so I'm really behind but I am going to be on a plane to Charlotte this week and so I'm going to have plenty of time to get caught up and I just you know the series is so so beautiful and so exciting and dangerous and and like dramatic but in a not in a like oh it's so dramatic and you know it's more like oh my god like I can't stop reading this and I forget why I did stop reading it uh, who knows? Uh, there's there's so many comics. And uh, I think that I tend to, with books like this, uh, I like to binge read. So I like to let them kind of pile up. And oh, then yeah. like that can just kind of sometimes uh, bite me in the ass because then I forget to read them again. So, you know, comic industry, if you could just please adjust yourself to my reading preference, that would be great. <laughs> and uh, just like give me an arc at a time. That would make me happy. But yeah. um, it seems like uh, five issues. That's like almost an arc. So that's enough saved up that I should probably like dive back in there and um, get really excited about all those Eisner noms. Heck yeah. How long has Monstrous been running now? Because it, I mean, I get that, yes, it's an image book and they take weird breaks, but I feel like that book's been going on for what, three, four? Not no, four. No, no, three not years. Three. Maybe more like three. You know, yeah, okay. there, I mean, I think there's a misconception that image books are inherently weird. I think some are weird, but there is like a quote unquote image release schedule, which is an arc and then a break and then a trade and then a break and then the next mm-hmm. arc starts. And yeah. so there's like a three month break technically between arcs that makes it seem like forever. And yeah, I don't know, which is why it's hard when you're like a trade waiter and then you're like, Oh, uh, I have to start. Then it's forever that. to you. Yeah, yeah. It's like a million years. So yeah. I don't know. It's not perfect, but I don't want artists to die. So they should have some breaks. 
I agree. That being said, image, I just want to shove this in here. Uh, where's the old guard, image? Where's the oh, old geez. guard? Nick, we're, we're not getting into that. We're, Nick, we're not getting into that. Mike, okay. what did you read? Or what where's are you looking book? forward to? <laughs> the old guard is going to come back, Nick. Greg Rucka said that they were taking a break until forever. If Where? the old guard takes the breaks that Black Magic took, I'll see oh you in God. five years. Okay? Yeah, exactly. So... For me this week, I'm very excited for By Night, number one, by John Allison and Christine Larson. I'm not usually let down by boom, boom books, and this is the same writer who's on Giant Days, so like this book is probably going to be a winner, and Christine Larson's art is fucking incredible. So I'm really excited because the premise of this book sounds like two friends decide or accidentally stumble into another dimension and then they decide let's make a documentary and get filthy rich but the other dimension is filled with monsters and magic and it may be a chance for a new life so who says they even have to come back i'm willing to take a chance on this book that i'm very very certain is going to get me completely hooked but yeah this this looks beautiful and everything about this book sounds fantastic so i have no reason to doubt that this book would be good at all i don't know why i keep saying that but it's very very cool looking i'm very excited about it i do want to quickly touch on i don't know i don't know um and if it's ongoing so be it john allison has a fantastic track record as far as i'm concerned his giant days Mm -hmm. is one of the most perfect books on the shelves i do want to make one quick note before we go into the break I'm very torn about the magic order number one because <laughs> it sounds so cool. Except you and a, so many people. It's a it's a Mark Miller book, and I'm just like I don't know. I just don't know. So, um, all you listeners out there, if you do end up buying or reading this book, let me know what you think. Um, give me your very honest, harsh, critical opinion because I'm very torn, like in a lot of ways, about this book because it sounds like everything I'd ever want in a comic book. But I know that I've been very disappointed by Mark Miller's promises in the past. So, someone let me know. <sighs> it looks pretty. It looks very pretty. That's ugh. Anyways, we're going to go into a break. When we come back, we have a very special guest on the show. She's fantastic. You're going to love it. So, stick around. On our show this week, we have a very special guest. Her name is Hope Nicholson. Hope, thank you so much for joining us on this show. This is a Kickstarter commissioned episode talking about all sorts of different stuff. But before we get into it, Hope, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how awesome you are? <laughs> uh, a comics publisher based in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. I've also done some work with Dark Horse Comics, curating the collections The Secret Loves of Geek Girls and The Secret Loves of Geeks, as well as uh, Margaret Atwood's angel catbird series and i'm also kickstarter thought leader i'm actually not 100 sure that program still exists but it basically means i uh, help give advice and solve issues when comic book creators have things that come up in their kickstarter campaigns and you're also an author yes right i wrote a history book the spectacular sisterhood of superwomen which uh, analyzes the history of female characters in comics from the 1930s through to the present day you know, you know, you're awesome when you have to leave things off your CV. That's when yeah. you know you've made it. Well, I should probably leave the thought leader thing off because now they have uh, official comics. No one's told me one way or the other. So, well, you but you've you've done it, so you, it still could go on the CV. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, that is that is a very super legit list. I think that makes you the most legitimate person that's been on this show. So um, we'll give you that award. How about that? If the Kickstarter thing isn't real, at least you've got that from this show. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so you know we're here um, to talk about basically like the history of comic books, specifically geared towards women. Um, we had this, we had someone reach out to us from the Kickstarter um, who commissioned this episode to talk about how you know over the years comic books have you know started to drift more and more in the direction of focusing not just on you know white male demographic but like a, a broader spectrum but like there's still a lot of work to be done um but nonetheless like how have you you know as someone who's done an entire or written an entire book about this how do you see that progression move from you know the early 30s and you know earlier than that maybe when comic books were in their very very infant infancy um to now where we're seeing kind of more and more books being brought to a more diverse spectrum of readers I mean, I think a a lot of the issue that happens when people think about comic book history is that they think it's a straight line progression, that comics were really bad, and that now they're better than they've ever been. Um, And unfortunately, that's that's not the case. It's really more of a up and down zigzag line in terms of both how the industry has treated creators as well as how fans have been geared towards. Uh, So women readers, especially at the beginning of comics, it was kind of an open playing field. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was, on the one hand, there was the sex comics that were in pulps, and those were very, very much geared towards just, like, male readers and gentlemen's clubs. But on the other hand, the most popular comics were kids' comics, and those were fully non-gendered. So both the boys and girls read them pretty evenly. And then when the superhero comics came out, those, too, were pretty non-gendered. So if you look at the letter columns back in those old comics, you see that there's a lot of women and a lot of men writing into the comics, which is really interesting. Then things started to split off into more gendered comics. Uh, So women got romance comics, boys got war comics, and you still saw really good sales from the female readership, but things were definitely changing to make it less of an open playing field. And then, of course, uh, when the romance comics kind of dissolved, and that happened at a time when comics had been moving from the newsstands into uh, hobby shops, so what we know know as comic shops, but at the time they were kind of just either head shops or like guys selling comics out of their basement kind of thing. Uh, It really hit the death knoll for female readership in comics, and that lasted for about 30 years, I'd say. And only when the distribution is starting to get a bit more even now, like we're not seeing that many comics on newsstands, but the internet is like the world's biggest newsstand. So webcomics have always been uh, very much enjoyed by everyone of any gender. And now that a lot of more books are being sold in bookstores, that's been a huge plus as well. And of course, the rise of superhero movies has only helped um, kind of the spread of gender equality in terms of readership. It seems like so the the person who kickstarted or, or who commissioned this episode from the Kickstarter, I know very well because she's my mom. And uh, <laughs> so we'll just, you know, and so, I mean, my uncle's a huge my, my uncle's entire like garage is full of comics and they grew up as kids reading comics. And my mom feels like there was a certain point when she was chased out of the space and it was partly because she, they were sort of for kids, but also for boys. And so it's interesting that it's what well, we talk about the space as this kind of like abstract comics space, but it sounds like 
it also was quite literally about being chased out of the space where you can actually buy comics. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, due to safety concerns, not a lot of women are going to feel comfortable going to some guy's old moldy basement <laughs> and not only that, being subjected to like, who knows what kind of language and conversation. And I mean, there was still the type of uh, gatekeeping nerdity that still exists a bit today with guys being huge about collecting and about knowing every single thing about every single issue and every creator and women more enjoying it, doing things with it. Like, there's a reason why a lot of most popular girls' comics were ones that asked the female readers to send in designs. Because, by and large, when women engage in fandom, I mean, and this is a generalization, of course, not all women do this, and some women are collectors as well, but they like to do something with it. So being able to create to female readers, but just collecting the comics and knowing a lot of stats was not really of interest. I, f- I saw recently someone talking about the, the differences, and I think the terms that they used were curatorial and transformative. And I actually would put out there that connoisseurial seems like maybe a better word than curatorial, because curatorial to me implies a real engagement kind of like what you were just saying whereas when you're connoisseurial you literally are just like memorizing the stats and collecting the things and and it seems like I don't know I wonder if curatorial is a little closer to the sort of transformative which I think is another word for fan fiction basically yeah the transformation content is usually uh, connected to fan fiction, fan art. Um, although I feel like fan art's always been pretty gender, like on both sides. Like, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I've never noticed a really strong gender division in terms of who does fan art. Also, like, look, unless you invented Spider-Man, if you, like, I don't care if you're hired to work on Spider-Man and you're, like, sanctioned by Marvel to draw Spider-Man, like, it, it's, you, it's fan fiction. It's, it's fan art. Oh, for sure. Like, even, I feel like all modern comics for Marvel and DC are just grown-up kids doing fan art. And right. I, I like that. Like, it's very enjoyable. But the comics have been dead for a long time, you know? Like, <laughs> it's, you're writing things about characters that premiered 80 years ago. It's not the same series anymore. So all it can be is kind of an echo of something that started way back then. Right. But I think your idea of taking the term curatorial away from kind of the male gendered way of processing comics is interesting because I think it makes sense because a lot of women are involved in the archive fields, in uh, information sciences, in libraries. And that's where you see a lot of the curation, a lot of the archival, a lot of the collections. Right. Uh, It's just on a one-on-one personal basis. You don't see a lot of women with huge, you know, long boxes cluttering up their basements. Yeah. So I guess my... My next question about that is like specifically around like the collection side is like, do you think that the rise of like the superhero genre out of the, you know, comics code and stuff like that kind of forced like a gender bias, given that those types of books typically lean towards like male readers? No, I feel like superhero books were definitely the books that were not specifically gendered, uh, especially the Marvel ones when they came out in the Silver Age. There was a lot of guys who came from writing romance comics who merged into writing superhero comics, and they brought that same kind of, well, let's face it, melodrama <laughs> to the superhero comics, oh, totally. which made them so 
enjoyable. And again, if you look at the letter pages, even in the Silver Age, you see a lot of women writing in. Um, I'd say the more male gendered comics were things like the war comics uh, and the horror comics too, to a great degree. Especially mm -hmm. when Warren comics came out with you know Vampirella and all those those fun comics. But unfortunately, superhero comics did become male gendered mostly because of the industry, because there was not a lot of women who could or could feel comfortable accessing the content once they left the newsstand. Right. Oh, I just I think that it's it's really interesting to put romance and superheroes in the same idea because I mean you really are dealing with the same kind of melodrama and also sentimentality really in superhero comics that you see in romance comics and there's this idea that sentimentality is is somehow false or contrived but really like so the the idea of sentimentality in literature and also in behavior is it's almost like you, the thing that you're feeling is so intense that you need a prescribed set of behaviors and like a script in order to express it and interact with other people surrounding this really intense dramatic feeling that you have and that's kind of more what the sentimental is when it's not people have like an idea that it's like a hallmark greeting card but i think that you know there's just there's so many as you say hope melodramatic themes in both of those kind of books and you know but you would never hear someone describe superhero books as sentimental i mean unless they were being really critical yeah i think that's fair to say i think there are elements of the unreal in superhero comics that go beyond just the fact that they have superpowers and they can fly and they can fight bad things. But the idea that all of their emotions are kind of heightened up to this, this nth degree. And when you read it, like you read X-Men, you're like, wow, this is very dramatic. There's, there's a lot of love affairs and uh, people leaving each other and, and deaths and all these things that are kind of Grey's Anatomy-ish. But we're aware of it. Like, no one reads it and is like, yes, this is what real life is like. This is what real people's relationships are like. Mm -hmm. But it's heightened in a way that not only can we enjoy it, but we can feel a little bit distant from it. Uh, because sometimes when things are too real, they're also too painful for us to uh, watch and process. I can't read I Kill Giants without, you know, feeling real bad about everything. <laughs> That's a very sad book. <laughs> When I read I Kill Giants, I feel bad that I don't cry, and I think everyone's judging me. <laughs> That's okay. I'm not judging you, I promise. Okay. <laughs> we also, yeah, Mike is our resident um, X-Men feelings guy. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've, I've regularly called out the X-Men for basically being a daytime soap opera many, many times to the point where it's almost frustrating. Like, I want a little bit of realism, but I realize we're far, 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 far beyond any chance of hope for that, which is why you get, like, every once in a while you get a little miniseries or something that's nice that has, a like, a, a real-life kind of reflection in it. But on the whole, it's, it's just way out there. You know, Nightcrawler being a priest who died, went to heaven, came back to life only to realize that it was not that bad but everything's terrible i don't know like we're never going to get a real life story about characters like that i'm totally fine with it i mean get some like i thought the earth x series was a really great way to explore the the heroes on a more personal intimate level where he, but it also felt too raw like i was reading it and i'm like wow i'm really depressed reading this because yeah. a lot of the characters are kind of just 
acting like real people. Um, so. Hope, when you were doing research for this topic, did you get a sense that women who were still creating comics even during this period where it was, a, you know, more male dominated, did you get the sense that they felt like I'm doing this thing for womankind or were they just like, I'm here making my comics? It's a good question. Definitely the underground comics creators like Trina Robbins uh, and the whole crew around the Tissenclitz and women's comics type of area were very aware that it was a feminist revolution and it was intended as such. Mm-hmm. But prior to that, the women that worked in comics, there was a few artists, a few writers, a lot of color artists. And the, unfortunately, the reason why there was a lot of women working in color is because they were related often to the actual artists and color art was seen as kind of a lesser form. It was just kind of busy work. Right. So you'd be like, well, okay, so-and-so's girlfriend needs a job. Here, you can make them a color artist. But a lot of times they actually went on to be uh, more successful, more prolific in the industry than their partners, which I always find kind of funny. I did. Like, I not a lot of people know of John Severin's work, but they know definitely know of uh, his sister Marie Severin's color work. Oh, that, right. I mean, this is basically true in, I think, every creative field, I would imagine. That uh, people's partners get busy work to do and then end up succeeding. I'm not yeah. sure. Uh, yeah. Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and but so, that said, like a lot of times, the women who are working those roles didn't. Uh, from what I've talked about with Trina, is that they didn't view it as being transgressive or anything like that. A lot of times, they kind of just went with the flow of things um, and tried to cause as little waves as possible just to get by. Which you know, I think all of us do every day, unfortunately. But it was definitely even more so then because you couldn't risk losing your job. It strikes me as really. I don't know, just like tying this back to what we were talking about in terms of like women readers being kicked out of the space at a certain point. Like if you were a dude who was casually interested in comics, it seems like it would have been fairly easy for you to continue being casually into comics throughout this period. Whereas if you were a woman who were who was casually interested in comics and then all of a sudden you had to go to some creepy dude's basement to buy them, you're probably going to lose interest. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the big reason why a lot of things faded out for women. Not only uh, was the distribution different, though, is that a lot of times the romance genre was getting a little stale for people to read. Like, we talk about heightened emotions, and that's why romance comics were really popular. But they were also always written by men, and they were pretty bad. Like, they were very <laughs> and they could be very fun to read nowadays. But at the time, uh, people reading it were, you know, seeing really great authentic storylines on television, for example. Mm-hmm. And storylines in comics, by comparison, were seeming really hackneyed and cheesy. So there was even less of an incentive to go into comic book stores when the comics there really weren't serving your needs anymore. Right. And so this shift that we've seen now with web comics and digital comics and I mean we can even start talking about Kickstarter maybe and the idea that you don't necessarily need the blessing of some big publisher to make your work and put it in front of people you know it seems like it's a lot easier now for someone to be a casual 
reader of comics, which, you know, I know we like to pretend that we're all like dedicated, diehard, like four colors run through our veins. But I think the industry really needs casual readers, too. Yeah, I think so, for sure. And that's the problem with superhero comics is that they're so serial that you can't be a casual reader. Like, there's no there's no chance of that. Either you get every single issue or you don't read them. Um, so that's kind of a, a weird market. The reason earlier I read the vision series for Marvel is because I haven't read Marvel in a few years and I was able to just jump in and read the series and not have to know a lot about what was going on in the wider universe. And it was great. Mm-hmm. So I definitely yeah. think casual readers are, are, are huge. And it's the reason too, why, original creator-owned content does really well, like why Saga does so well, why Wicked and the Divine does so well, is because people can start from the beginning from a from a finite point and finish it off, you know, until the end, hopefully. And you can binge read. Like nobody nobody consumes media on a serial basis anymore. Well, I mean, like the conk industry is still doing pretty good in monthly sales like definitely not nearly as good as it used to but enough that there is still like this core right but i mean rely it it just it's it feels very rickety to rely on those people and they have to replace themselves at some point and i you know in order to do that you've got to get new people to become diehard readers i don't know i just i feel like we have to come to terms at some point with the fact that people want to read a whole book like at once. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely for the uh, single volume graphic novels. It's basically almost all that I read now. So yeah. I'm a huge fan of them. I guess it'd be great if serial comics had less of a presence than they do in the comic industry and more people were doing standalones. Um and I think eventually that will happen, but these people are, you know, for being fans, very reluctant to give up, but eventually they'll die. So. <laughs> <laughs> so not that you... I want them to by any means, like not all serial hardcore readers are bad people, but no, of course. it will be nice to see the industry shift and change and become a bit more like the book industry. Yeah, that, that was exactly what I was going to ask. Do you think that something like the like the the book industry or the prose industry works better for for I guess casual readers. I mean, it seems kind of obvious that yes, I think it does because you can just pick up a novel and you know, then you're good to go. And if you're going to continue to read you know, longer books like they're at least sequential and easy to find or whatever, but where compared to floppies, but like do you think that that would I mean, to to kind of circle back a little bit towards the towards the topic, um do you think that would make it easier for people of, you know, all genders, not just these diehard typically probably white male readers? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the the biggest surge of um, new demographics and readership that we've seen is with young female readers. And a lot of that is because of the work that Scholastic and other companies that are in the book market have been doing Mm -hmm. to gear themselves towards those readers. And they have discovered that, wow, girls actually really like reading comics if you make them in specific format. So Mm -hmm. a lot of times... Uh, these single volume trades or these series that are very clearly labeled are really big. Like my niece is eight right now and like she's obsessed with uh, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, which is kind of not quite comic, not quite an illustrated book, but she loves having the complete series. And you can see even on the spines, it's super 
very easy to pick up one, then two, then three, then four. Mm-hmm. In a way that, like, how are you supposed to do that with superhero comics when there's no way to figure out what comes next? Yeah. I, know, I, I stopped reading pretty much all superhero comics when Marvel went back to their, like, million, hundred, and fifty billion numbering. And I just it's was like, I'm out. Legacy numbering? <laughs> <laughs> I'm out. Done. Yeah. <laughs> It's, and it's I know- really too hard. Like when yeah. I was really, really into serial comics, uh, which was basically in early twenties through mid twenties. Like before that, I would just buy whatever I could get at flea markets, and after mm-hmm. that, I mostly just bought graph novels. But there was about a, you know, six year period where I I had my pull list and I was getting comics every week. And the only way I would know how to know what to get was to go to these like really extensive reading lists that were usually created by pirates but they were obsessed with telling you what order you should read things in and pick things up with. Oh, yeah. So it was really helpful for my pull list as well. But, like, it shouldn't be that way. Like, that's an awful way to run a company. We make it so hard for people to buy the comics. Yeah. Which I think that kind of explains the solid success that we've seen with publishers like, you know, Black Mask or Vault or even Image, obviously, you know, like Image, we just, you know, you talked about Wicked and Divine, where there's just like a single series, that's all you need to read, and it's going to be collected, and it's going to be clearly labeled with the number of volumes that you need to read. None of this like crossover event stuff, which still happens every once in a while in indie comics, but on the whole, like most books coming from non-big two publishers uh, or big four publishers at least are typically just standalone you just read it and those books usually do really well specifically in graphic novel sales which i think like kind of clearly shows that that's the direction people should be thinking about for sure the only problem is uh while that is the thing that often a lot of us say especially as we read comics because that's our own personal interest when you look at the sales chart I think they could do even better if they wanted to, if they integrated more with, you know, the audiovisual industry and that. But by no means do I think that it's time for them to be discounted just yet. Right, right. It's really interesting to me, though, that whenever you have a conversation about diversity, diverse audiences, getting new readers, like it always comes back to the distribution and the methods of buying comics. And (laughs) it makes me wonder and... I'm sure this isn't true, but hope you've you've kind of like been in the archives, so you probably have a better sense of this. Like when the when things changed from the newsstand to the comic shop, was there like a conscious we're making this a boys club now, or did was that just a perk for them? <laughs> yeah, I think that's basically it. Like, I don't think or malicious intent when Mm -hmm. these uh, changes in demographics happen. But there is a significant ignorance. And so people aren't looking around being like, where are the people? And like, let's not discount the fact that women's comics went up and down and up and down. But comics geared towards people of color has always been very, very down and only Mm -hmm. has been on its upswing even in the last 10 years or so. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a demographic uh, shift that's, been great to see and definitely has a lot of things to do with accessibility but also as we were talking about kickstarter and web comics with accessibility of getting material out there easier and getting more creator-owned content out there and not having publishers as a gatekeeper has been making that shift really significant i also am wondering uh in like from a creator standpoint 
you know, obviously you don't have to go to art school to learn how to be a comic book artist, but it just seems like the other thing that the internet has brought is like YouTube tutorials and, you know, just like even the, the methods of learning the craft seem a lot more accessible to a much broader group of people than before the internet. Yeah, especially social media, just being able to kind of use Twitter, for example, as your water cooler to connect with other creators who are coming up on your level and to also meet people who could be potential fans of your work is something that we've never had before. Like we've never had this open market to just put your work out there and see what response it gets. And I mean, it's it's a very, very crowded market, mm-hmm. uh, which make it really hard for stuff to get out there. But at the same time, it is a lot more fair than anything else we've ever had. And that goes for learning as well and talking to people. Like I've seen a lot of creators put something up and be like, I don't know how to use uh, this stylus on my tablet. And other people pipe in really quick with tips and tricks or different hardware to buy. Mm-hmm. And that's something that they wouldn't have been able to do before unless they were going to conventions and just like bugging people with questions all the time. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, I've seen I've seen stuff like that. Like, I think I saw you post something the other day. It's like, I can't talk about this, but I need someone to write an eight-page story. Is anybody out there? And then the number of responses that flooded in is like, it's really cool to see that happen like almost instantaneously um, just to get creators together. It's very, very cool. It's, um, it's really remarkable. I don't use social media as much as I used to, but definitely when I need something in a pinch, people are so supportive in tweeting out calls for submissions and tweeting out like questions for people. Anything that could potentially get a struggling creator, not only exposure, but also payment, people are really happy to kind of put their own feelings aside and retweet it and push it to make sure that everyone has access to these opportunities. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, to kind of go off of that a little bit, I mean, you worked on a couple books, you, you worked on a few books, I should say, um, you know, that are, have been collaborative efforts, like something like The Secret Lives of Geeks was a bunch of people put together. You know, how did something like that come together? Were you commissioned by Dark Horse to say, hey, you know, find people, put this book together? Or was it just like a, a mutual love of a couple different things and you made a book? Um, like, what was that all about? Or how did that all come together, I guess, is the better question. Yeah, so it's, uh, it kind of varies. So The Secret Loves of Geek Girls was originally done through Kickstarter. So I had a finished product already in hand, but I want to get out to a wider marketplace. And the way the distribution works is that I'm limited. So like on Kickstarter, yeah, you might be able to sell a few thousand copies, which is great mm-hmm. and sustainable if you can keep doing that. But it doesn't grow you that much compared to if you get in a bookstore and you can sell suddenly tens of thousands of copies uh, just as easily. Right. So having Dark Horse attached to the second print run of The Secret Loves of Geek Girls was really great. And I auditioned a few different publishing companies during that time period. And yeah, Dark Horse for me was the best fit at that time. So when I wanted to do a sequel, The Secret Loves of Geeks, which was an all-gender edition, Mm -hmm. I approached them as well and said, look, let's just skip the Kickstarter and let's just do it directly. So in that case, yeah, I worked on kind of an ideal list and ran it past the editor there. We kind of worked in collaboration. His name isn't on the book, uh, but I think uh, Daniel Chabon, who's at Dark Horse, is definitely as integral to the success of the books as I am, for sure. 
and they gave me money that I then just kind of filtered to the creators. Okay. Um, so it's kind of funny to be working on a book for a year and a half, two years, and post advance come in, you know, a year later. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people think I'm making a lot of money of these anthologies, but in truth, a publisher's job is really not to make money. It's just to filter money from one source to another. Gotcha. I wanted to ask you about Bedside Press, uh, you, you know, because you know the the struggles of things from both the, the perspective of the, the curator or the editor of the anthology, but also from the publish, publisher's perspective, because Bedside Press has done some anthologies and uh, you... I, if we're going to start talking about diversity or continue talking about diversity, it seems like one thing that Bedside Press has really striven to do is put books out there that maybe would not have support from other publishers. Yeah, that's that's absolutely accurate. Um, I think the best example of that is a book that I didn't do on Kickstarter, but I just... um, kind of did a few pre-sales and then funded it out of pocket, which was Love Beyond Body, Space, and Time. And that's actually my only prose book to date. And it's a collection of indigenous LGBT sci-fi stories. And a lot of times when I tell people about this, it's either, wow, that's really amazing because we don't see a lot of Native people in the future and because there's not a lot of information on LGBT and two-spirited Native and Indigenous people. And then on the flip side, the other response I get from well-meaning liberal people is, wow, don't you think that's too much stuff to put in one book? Oh, my God. Like, too niche, too specific. And I'm like, do you think that there's not gay Native people? Do you think that they don't want sci-fi and fantasy? Like, I don't understand why if you have a few descriptors in front of a thing, suddenly you think it's it's too much. Also, why is that book only for gay native people who like sci-fi like hey read outside of your identity maybe once or twice for sure like i i really think the book is good and a lot of people who've responded to it are people who don't fall into that that identity matrix that that cross-section uh but there's they're really good fantasy and sci-fi stories and who wants to read about the same like colonizing a white guy <laughs> going on a spaceship and like beating up aliens like it gets uh, boring and repetitive at the least yeah yeah absolutely and so I feel like I've seen a, a people talk about that book also in an academic context or it ends up on a lot of um, professor syllabus for I don't know what like what kind of what kind of classes do you see engaging with that book it's been picked up by a few courses I'm always uh, very excited when I see that especially in Canada a lot of times it gets put on to uh, sexually diverse literature courses. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes on to indigenous literature courses as well, but I've seen mostly that it, it goes on under there. A few rare times I've seen it on fantasy and sci-fi courses syllabus, but I'd say by and large, kind of the structure is uh, courses that deal with LGBT literature and then courses that deal with indigenous literature, followed by courses that deal with fantasy and sci-fi. So... I would not be mad if I had to read an like a sci-fi book as part of one of my classes in college. I would be very happy about that, I think. <laughs> I mean, I, I went to school for like computers, so it was like a totally different thing. Maybe other people are reading fantasy and sci-fi normally, but like if I had to, if I took a class and they're like, "Oh, and we're going to read this, you know, LGBT sci-fi book about indigenous people." Like I would be totally blown away. So, 
thumbs up to those professors out there. <laughs> Listen, liberal arts majors may not ever have any money, but we got to read fun stuff in college. <laughs> yeah. It's true. And I mean, speaking of that, because I have a small history in academia and schooling, I always try as a publisher to make my books as cheap as possible to students. Uh, so a lot of times I was frustrated when I was doing my comic book research as a student and all of these old comics were not accessible. So I couldn't mm -hmm. even read them, study them. All I had to do was, all I could do was read what other people have written about a few comics that they had read. And these are specifically, I mean, about the 1940s Canadian comics, which were my first foray into publishing was reprinting, restoring and publishing them. But then at that point, no one could buy the books. Like students, if they found a copy, they were like 40 bucks each uh, because I couldn't afford a full print run. Mm -hmm. So I managed to cut costs and do a print-on-demand version. And suddenly now students who want to read the books can pick up a copy for 10 bucks and have access to it. So keeping in mind that students don't have this unlimited supply of money and that you can't take advantage of them uh, just because they have to read something for a course is something that's really important for me when I'm doing these books. That's awesome. I mean, and it's, I mean, I think like that also makes it accessible to people of just lower income in general, right? I mean, that's, that's groundbreaking as far as I'm concerned. That's awesome. Yeah, you... for sure. I mean, there's, there's some that you can't do anything about, like a full color graphic novel that's a large size. There's really no way to cut a lot of costs there without... Sure literally going to the negative each sale. Um, but definitely on the prose books and on the black and white graph novels, there's a lot of ways to make it available to people at lower costs. Mm -hmm. Do you engage much with librarians or um, we were talking about archivists earlier? Like, I don't know, you seem very plugged into the academic side of comics. And I'm curious about how much... Uh, I mean, there are comics librarians, and I don't know how, like, how much of a tight-knit circle is that? I know some of them for sure, especially when I was doing a lot of my archival research into the old comics. So I kind of uh, am familiar with a bit of the community of comics academia and comic librarians. Um, I wish I was more plugged in to the general library sphere, because... Those are the people that you want to promote your books to younger readers. Uh, for example, if you have all ages books and you want them to kind of champion your books in general to the library systems because that's what gives you the greatest access to the most amount of readers. But I don't have a lot of access to those avenues right now. But it's definitely something that as I go on publishing, I make it my priority to do more reach outs and to connect with more librarians. Like this year at TCAF, I took part in Library and Educator Day, and we did these really quick speed dating type of things where a group of different uh, 10 librarians would come to your table, you tell them about all your books, and then they'd ring a bell, and another group of librarians would come. And that was amazing. <laughs> it was so great. That's awesome. And I wish uh, I could do more stuff like that, like go to ALA, the American Library Association uh, annual meeting, or the Canadian Library Association, stuff like that is really on my agenda to grow my business in the next few years. At what, at what point in the history of comics, because we sort of talked about where comics were accessible on, on their zigzag timeline, um, at what point did comics start showing up in libraries? And it, like, when did that start becoming a, a place where you could actually find comics or uh, have people champion your comic books? I mean, that's really interesting because I can only go by personal anecdotes 
anecdotal information at this point, uh, which was when I was a kid and I wanted to get comics from the library, um, the metadata was often inaccurate. So they would say, for example, especially because I know we both enjoy ElfQuest, uh, <laughs> they would have like 12 volumes of ElfQuest, then you'd put an order for every single one, you'd find out that they only had volume four, actually. Right. So that was a big issue. And there was no actual separated section. And it's, it's definitely gotten better, especially in the kids' day graphic novel sections. But I find a lot of times I go to the library still and I see things like, hey, maybe Saga shouldn't be in the kids' section. Oh, I get God. it. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, this is highly inappropriate. My local library has that problem too. It's like, because there's still this idea that all comics are for kids like you see and I'm like have you cracked this book open like or like you don't even have to open it look at the cover of the walking dead it is not for children yes yeah I think younger librarians are really changing the system in that regard Mm -hmm. and the other big thing too that's helping to change the library system are the library comic festivals so things like TCAF of course which is held in the Toronto Public Library I have an event as well in the Winnipeg Public Library are things where you can really get the librarians more engaged with the creators, with the discussions. I've even been doing panels where I'm having librarians go through their catalogs and recommend things to kids. And not only is that great for the audience, but it's also really great for librarians to refresh their knowledge of what they have and what they have access to. I feel like this all has an implied kind of gender slant to it these things that we're talking about like you know because I think that you really think of librarians and young like all of this is kind of goes back to you know these seem to be more predominantly woman-filled spaces and I don't know I just it's it's almost I feel bad I feel bad because it's like dudes do you know that there's all these things that you miss out on because I don't know it just as a as Finish a dude, my thought, Mike. Um, <laughs> as a dude, I absolutely agree with you. Like, I really didn't take advantage of my local library until very recently, and I'm like kicking myself for it. Like, I'm almost thirty years old, and I didn't step into a library like on an official capacity to get a book until I was like twenty eight. Like, that's that's wrong, and and that's like a, really an amazing resource. Too. Like, what did you read when you were a kid? Well, that's the did thing. You like, have money, like books. Well, I I did a lot of like swap it like i wasted a lot of money just like buying books when i should have been you know buying food in college and on top of that it was just like you know i would swap books with a lot of people or i would borrow books from friends um whose parents did you know have money for books and things like that or you know i would just read the same things over and over um when i was younger uh like i think i read the harry potter series probably like 20 times when i was in high school just because like that was a book series that I owned and those were mine and I was very certain of it or like one other book series um, until I really got into comics and started to read more and more. And, you know, I think like we were talking, you were talking about before, you know, like the list of books that you would get on like pirate sites and stuff like that, you know, like at a time, that's what I was reading was like pirated comic books on the internet um, because I didn't have any money. But like, I should have been just going to the library. That would have solved all of my problems. I wouldn't have to like seek out all these weird, goofy websites and things like that to find things. Instead, I could have been using these utilities that like exist for the purpose of what ex- exactly what I was doing, just to try to enrich myself and read more things. It was it's is a whole problem, and it just because there was no like prejudice against it, it's just I didn't use it. Yeah, no. The thing is, though, as me and Tia were saying, even if you went to those libraries, then you're not going to see a lot of comics then. Yeah. Like, 
there wasn't a, a huge amount and definitely there would be gaps. And so you'd probably still have to go to the pirate sites anyways to fill in those gaps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so their libraries are a great resource, but we still have to kind of be on top of libraries and tell them what we need and what they should be doing. So a lot of people who engage in libraries are really important uh, because libraries are also stretched thin. Like, I don't know about you, but I, I work for the government here and part of our job is, is monitoring libraries and they have so little money mm-hmm. that even saying things like, well, they should know a lot more about comics. It's like, well, they're also trying really hard just yeah. to keep afloat. Some are trying, but it's, it's really tough when the whole system is also stacked against them. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think you're speaking from like the Canadian side. I think the American side is the same, if not worse even in some more places. Dire. Yeah. <laughs> but Hey, we're, we're trying. That's the thing. Everyone should be out there writing your senators, get money to the <laughs> libraries. I don't know how that works. We'll find a, a proper channel to figure that out. I promise. Um, one other thing that I thought would be interesting to talk to you about, Hope, specifically is older women in comics. And we were talking a little before we got recording about the range of ages that you had um, contribute to Secret Loves. And part of what started this whole commission episode is my mom getting into comics again as, you know, later in life and feeling like she didn't really see herself anywhere, anywhere, you know? I mean, I always keep a a list whenever I find any older women in comics doing anything besides being a grandma so I can tell her about them. But it seems like there are few creators that are her age and uh, I don't know, like, could you talk a little bit about the landscape of that and and bringing a diverse range of ages to the contributors for Secret Loves? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely something that until we started talking about it before the show, I hadn't thought about that demographic. And when I kind of thought about it for a minute, I'm like, yeah, there there isn't a lot of content geared towards older readers, uh, especially like older female readers. Like, how am I going to get my grandma into comics, for example? Hmm. And a lot of that is is also, there's technical aspects, like things would need to be larger print, lettering would need to change, things like that, that comics are not terribly good. Like, I don't know if you know about this, but in terms of accessibility, comics are pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. There's, there's very few comics that are uh, transferred to other mediums where people with print disabilities can read them, for example. Um some are, like there are some places I've been able to transcribe them so that people can use readers to read it out. But by and large, that's, that's one part of the difficulty. And the other part, of course, is that there's not a lot of older women making comics. So doing Secret Loves of Geek Girls, it was really important for me to have an, a, uh, a wide range of ages. So both Margaret Atwood and Trina Robbins contributed, both of them in their 70s. Uh, and then we also had younger contributors around our youngest being 16 years old. And everyone's writing about love and romance. And you're reading it, and there isn't a lot of difference. Like, you know, Margaret's talking about how she loved, uh, like, dumb Tommy, like, playing with guns when she was, like, a little girl. And <laughs> I love how her comic <laughs> and how she loved reading comics but her brother would always like steal them off her and stuff like that and Trina Robbins is talking about how she has a crush on like Peter Capaldi on Doctor Who and how she's like men in the street it's really to me it feels so reassuring when I read those because I know that I don't have to be scared of the future like Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. things go oh. on. Your life goes on and you're still going to be the same person in some ways that you are now. It's really terrifying. And I mean, I I feel, <laughs> no, it's true. They're like men have all sorts of of older male role models and stories and narratives and scripts that they can look to and be like yeah okay like i can like settle into that but like we have nothing we have none of that and i agree i i i love those stories from secret loves and and i bet that's a big part of it is just to know that you know you still have your sense of humor and your interests and your feelings when you're you know, aging. Yeah, we need to be able to forward and kind of in the future and not only support old creators, which a lot of people, you know, poo-poo that because a lot of people say things like younger creators are the ones who know what's new and what's hip and what's now. And sure, that's important. It's really important to bring new creators into the world. And also, as we're seeing, especially with a lot of these older creators who no longer are able to sustain themselves, uh, who are getting physical impairments that can prevent them from writing or drawing. Mm-hmm. We also have to figure out a way, like this is a much, much bigger issue, to support them in some ways so that people don't have to do GoFundMes so they're not living out of their van yeah. anymore. Right. Yeah. And also, I feel like, you know, when we constantly say younger creators are the ones who know where it's at, it's like, does that become a self-fulfilling prophecy? Do we give people permission to just check out and not keep their point of view current when we say stuff like that because a that does not track with many of the older people that I know and b like I don't know I just feel like that is a weird cultural thing and it seems like we're missing out on on the perspective that older people have they live in the they they live in the world just like anyone else it it is very interesting because it's also painting all older people the same brush and like there are still some dinosaurs in comics who've been doing the same comics the same way for the last 40 years. But I think of John K. Snyder, for example, who I worked with on the fashion and action reprints. Not only is he, you know, super into the style that he was doing in the 80s, but he's thinking of all these ways to make it current, and he's looking at all these Instagram uh, models and all these current things, and it's a really neat way to pass with current things. And I think a lot of artists would like to have that opportunity but it's scary to think about branching into new styles when to be honest you're not sure if people even want that if you're going to lose your current fan base if people will make fun of you so I'm always really proud of John for kind of taking those steps and being very supportive of of newer creators as well I feel like we've tapped into this like aspect of diversity that that like needs to be mapped out more we should really, we should totally. really like fix this problem. I think it'd be great to get an anthology that's uh, able for the older reader, sorry, older reader, yeah, older reader to read and yeah. mm-hmm. make it interesting into their point of view. And that would be and- a cool anthology if someone wants to put it together. I would definitely throw <laughs> money at it. <laughs> well, cool. Well, I, I, I hate to cut this conversation off because this is fantastic, but we are running out of time, running out of tape, however you want to call it. Um, so to wrap up here, Hope, thank you so much for being on the show. You know, where can people find you on the internet? What should they read that you've edited or written? All that jazz. Yeah, I mean, you can read whatever you want of stuff I've done, but you can see me at uh, Hope Nicholson on Twitter, Hope Nicholson on, um, well, not on Facebook. Don't follow me on Facebook, please. <laughs> but bedside press on well there's always some people who try to like add you as a friend you're like but yeah. you're not <laughs> like i don't know you mm-hmm. sorry 
Uh, but Bedside Press is my publishing company, and uh, it has Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, website, all that cool stuff. Very cool. Uh, well, you can follow the rest of I Read Comic Books on Twitter. You can follow Nick at Death Star Plans. You can follow Tia at Portrait of Mad Max, spelled the cool French way. You can follow me on Twitter at Mike Rappin, and you can follow the show at IRCB Podcast, where we retweet stuff and post polls like the one we did today. What is Miss Marvel's favorite ice cream flavor? I picked some very weird ones. I'm sorry. Um, you can also check out our Goodreads group where we have weekly threads. This week, people are talking about an old thread, the best and worst dressed of comic book characters, and it's it's a lot of fun. Plus, we're reading a really cool book this month for our book club, Nimona, and that's amazing. Yeah, Nimona's web- pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Timing in. <laughs> our website is ircbpodcast.com, and you can find all the episodes, our pronunciation guide for creators in the industry. We have merch. Please that's rate. That's a really good idea. Yeah. We- I know that you guys did that. Yeah, if you have any you want to contribute, let us know. Hmm. Okay, cool. Please rate the show and subscribe. It helps us to reach more listeners. You can email the show at ircb at destroythesibe.org. Uh, Infinity Shred does all the music for the show. They're the very best band in the universe. Xander is a very cool guy. He gives very good high fives and hugs. When you, when you get to know him, he'll give you a good hug. Uh, he also edits the show, and he's great. Uh, I want to say thank you to Tia and Nick and Hope. Thank you so much for being on the show. This has been super, super cool. Um, we really should have you back. Once we get that older people anthology put together, we can you know come back together and have a discussion about it. So until next time, you listeners, you're the best. Go read comic books, try something new, support creators, and be friendly to each other. That's that's all we need in comics, it's just more friendliness. 